revolution is changed, upsetting the plans of the congressman, fighting against discrimination, finding solutions for your situation. Blacks in America, stop looking over the white man's shoulder. Blacks in Washington, still living on a slave plantation. Blacks in a The presidency in a DC No with a Cadillac and a Lincoln You have nothing to think on Why not organize? Use your money wise Help the lives of the young ones So blacks in a New York Rapping each other after dark Blacks in a Hollywood Now don't get scared Trespassing, trespassing, you're trespassing on the red man The presidency in a DC. So blacks in a Boston stand against the Ku Klux Klan. To replace them, I think the people who did that to them, yes, they need to be prosecuted. All right, time. Thank you. Mayor Stoney. Well, we believe that if you break the law, you should certainly be prosecuted. So if you damage property, uh, that's breaking the law. Uh, and if there's a mandated curfew uh, and you're out beyond curfew, uh, we saw individuals get arrested for that. You're listening to Race Capital. What we witnessed this summer was a cop riot, a dying Confederacy trying to preserve its waning power. And when we were attacked, surveilled, and vilified by these modernized slave catchers, the people who hold the legislative power in this city stood back and let them crack their whips. This week on Race Capital, co-hosts Chelsea Higgswise, Kalia Harris, and me, Naomi Isaac, interrogate the Confederacy's reluctance to release us from the carceral state and take even the most basic measures to defend Black lives. We're going to focus on the Public Safety Committee's recommendation to strike legislation that would ban the use of non-lethal weapons. First, we catch you up with news from across the American empire. This is WRIR 97.3 LP, Richmond Independent Radio, and you're listening to Race Capital. You know, what has Northam done? We've been protesting Northam to close the economy for the better half of the year. And now he got COVID and is receiving all the care that folks who've been protesting and like saying that they can't go into work because they're concerned about their health, that they need and can't afford. And And we've been telling him to release the incarcerated people that deserve to be free and are at risk of catching this virus as well. So people are ignoring that nationwide. People are ignoring that at home, even if they're considered blue. Uh, This is not necessarily a national news story, but because Virginia Senator Mark Warner was in the news this week as well because of his participation in appointing Judge Cavado, who we have heard specifically these last few months of having a very racist bias towards the way that he has done his ruling now and in the past. This judge has a reputation of being a well-known racist well before he was actually confirmed. Now we are seeing in the news and in particular news stories, you can check out our SoundCloud and look in our description to find the link. You can also see 
Community, where they have linked in his column that he wrote while he was in college, calling people parasites and really demeaning the entire busing system that was happening while he was in college. And all of these have the racial tensions. And we have to remind you that this is the same judge that had to step aside because of his conflict around the Robert E. Lee monument, as well in last episode, you heard that it is him overseeing many cases and many people's futures right here in Richmond that are facing a plea deal, which we know is just an admission of guilt, even when we haven't done something or facing a racist judge that could give you 10 years versus a plea deal of 3.5. And an update to Virgil Tucker Jr.'s story from last week, I will say that he did sign that plea deal. Last week, we're reporting it was for 3.5 years, and it did come down to 2.5 years. He did sign that last week. We're continuing to stay in touch with him and his loved ones, and we'll keep you updated on how that is going. Back to this judge. What we're learning this week is that during Judge Cavado's appointment, that even GOP legislators and, and people from both sides of the aisle were bringing up Cavado's racist history in his rulings. And what Mark Warner has said is that these appointments were part of an agreement of some Democrats get to appoint some judges and some Republicans get to appoint some judges. And this was him keeping his end of the bargain to appoint this racist judge. And here we are today, 2020, this judge has been in there for 16 years at least, and we can't even get a monument removed, much less make sure our people are free when our justice system we know is not working. This is why we say that the whole entire criminal legal system from the top down, from the electorate to the judges to the cops are complicit in upholding white supremacy because it should never be a decision between the Democrats and the Republicans about who has the right to determine our future. You said this man has been in power for 16 years. I'm 22. So no one's had the opportunity to weigh in on these people that are deciding the entire direction of the course of our lives. And the Democrats don't do anything to actually pose or posture themselves as genuine opposition from the people to these people. They're just like, you know, they get a turn too. They get a turn at white supremacy. And just to make matters even worse, to correct myself, he has been a judge for 18 years. So this is a legacy of white supremacy that we are still battling today. But good news, insert sarcasm here, LeVar Stoney's mayor's task force on reimagining public safety put out their first report last week and... Um, talking about burning the whole system down or dismantling it, understanding that over 40 people that are tied to the carceral system of cops and prosecutors are part of this commission that put together this proposal. It does read one of healing. It reads one of massive resistance. This is a concept that Dr. Ron Bagat has been in the community talking about for many years and we know from many other commissions that Mayor Stoney has put forward that this very nice report may be put in a folder and put on a shelf to sit there and do nothing with for years, just as we've seen from the Monument Avenue Commission, as well as the Anti-Poverty Commission. Is there any real news here? I'm still not hearing the police being defunded. It sounds like crickets. And how we are supposed to reimagine public safety with the people who have a monopoly on public safety to begin with. How are we reimagining or dismantling or rebuilding with the original architects 
of, of the genocide and the torture. Speaking of architects, Naomi, thank you for bringing that up. VCU is in the news this week. Taking about the architects of taking up all of our land right here in the fallen capital of the Confederacy, VCU was in the news for exploiting their workers. Wow, shocker. So it looks like construction workers at VCU are saying that they're being exploited and that VCU has promises changes for benefits, but they, right now, that they are saying that, quote, they don't pay people for overtime when they work more hours and and they don't deduct no taxes, end quote. Unfortunately, it is a known practice for VCU to hire construction companies that then contract out for undocumented labor. Now, this contracting out to these other companies that contract out, again, to undocumented workers is a cycle that VPM locally is really looking into of how VCU is now escaping accountability for these poor actions and poor protections of workers. Are you all surprised with this news? No, you're telling me VCU that is robbing their students, not paying their adjunct, are now not paying their workers, gentrifying our whole city, grabbing up all the money. I'm not shocked at all. Sounds like same old Virginia Columbus University as always. And it's very gross to witness people not being paid during a pandemic, especially as you said, when they're robbing students of millions of dollars and, and redistributing that money into administrative costs in the VCU PD. So we have a the VCU president making a salary, has probably one of the highest salaries, if not the highest salary in the country of all university presidents. And then we have the VCU PD whose spending and budget is one of the largest of university police departments in the nation as well. And you're talking, you're sitting on top of all that money and saying at the same time that you can't invest in the health and the well-being of your workers by paying them a living wage during a pandemic. You are correct, Naomi and Kalia. And speaking of getting robbed, the United States Postal Inspection Service and police are investigating after someone pried open and stole mail from post office mailboxes in multiple locations around Central Virginia. Now, quote, we received calls from several post offices around our blue boxes located at post offices had been tampered with, end quote. Officials say that there are six locations that are part of this investigation. And we know that by October 1st, more than 400,000 Virginians had already cast their ballots. Looks like that faith in your vote might not keep you warm at night this year, y'all. I mean, before the these boxes were robbed, they robbed us of likely millions of votes since last election with all the felonies that they've put on to people in our community. Thanks for bringing that up, Kalia. We also found out this week in Florida that Florida officials are actually going to enforce people to pay fines before they are able to vote. That's right. The poll tax is back down in Florida. <laughs> I don't even know how to react at this point. The overt racism. <laughs> the absolutely just overt racism that we are experiencing. It all while being gaslit. Sometimes you start to think you're going crazy when you link all these connections back to past oppression from past civil rights movement. And you're like, am I just crazy? Have I been reading too much? But it is actually the exact same blueprint. All of their methods of, of repression are the exact same methods that they've used on our ancestors in the past. It is. And another sad story to report from right here in Richmond and local news is that a GRTC bus driver did pass from COVID. 
we have read and, and talked about on the show about a driver that contracted COVID before the mask ordinances were in place, when the economy was not properly shut down, when our workers were not provided the PPE. And we are sorry to report that he did pass. And it reminds us that we have people right now that we are putting lives at risks and we're not following up to ever hear how they're doing, how their family's doing, what the recovery's like, what the family is like, and that there are whole communities that are connected to these statistics of positive COVID cases. In final local news, the Attorney General says she presented 18 sealed indictments to the grand jury concerning the actions of certain Richmond Police Department officers during the protests that occurred this summer. Of the 18 indictments Richmond Commonwealth's attorney submitted to the grand jury from the protests this summer, only two were returned as a true bill, meaning they will go to trial. One against Officer Christopher Brown for assault and battery, and one against Officer Mark Janowski for assault and battery. A total of eight officers were charged, but the other charges did not provide sufficient evidence for an indictment. What do y'all think? Folks have been asking to reopen the Marcus David Peters case to drop the charges against all those who have been involved in protesting police brutality to defund the police. You can't charge 18 officers with assault and battery when we have pictures of the entire several different police forces, like actually all committing assault and battery against protesters because the police are there to commit assault and battery. And so I think when it comes to trajectory, where it's that folks are looking to to tie the loose ends of the past civil rights movement, right? We aren't just looking to indict officers. We aren't just looking to charge folks. We're looking to have the demands that we presented met, which I think a couple of those demands need to be urgently met probably before we go into indicting officers that are not likely to be charged anyway, or, you know, heal any of, of the abuse happening in the streets or end it. Yeah, ultimately, I don't have faith in our so-called criminal justice system to what, I don't know what, what we're supposed to get out of that. That doesn't actually do anything. It doesn't capture even a bit of the scope of the violence that those officers have inflicted on people, not only throughout the summer, but throughout lifetimes in this city. And so we need to see a lot more than indictments of a few officers. We need to see defunding of the police that are causing this violence. So that includes, you know, releasing the names of all of those officers, not just the two, but who are all 18 of those officers who have been charged with these violent crimes against people in our community. I really think we need to be seeing people lose jobs and we need to be seeing the police force being cut because they are all and have they all have been complicit in in the assault and battery of Richmonders throughout the summer, whether or not they've been indicted and whether or not they will be charged. They all have been complicit. And so I think we really, you know, I'm looking forward to the city as a whole, their next steps being a hiring freeze and disarmament rather than it being charging an indictment. Because we know, as we just witnessed with the Breonna Taylor case, that it's not likely that indictments and charges against officers will result in anything substantial for us. 
And it's not just the the fact of a few bad officers that have committed violence against protesters this summer. It is a problem of the inherent violence of the Richmond Police Department. And so we need to be talking less about individual punishments and a lot more about systemic punishments, which looks like defunding, demilitarizing. Well, there you have it. The race capital reframe of the news this week. Thank you so much to my co-hosts. And let's dive right on in to this episode where we're going to talk about what's coming up this Monday, what they're trying not to talk about. Stay tuned. Sounds like July 28th public comment still stands pretty relevant to what's going to happen this coming up Monday, October 12th at city council. Yeah. They don't even want to hear the people's voice. The reality is that folks have already come out in droves and spoke at public comment. We flooded it before putting our trauma on display for city council and they're not even allowing us that chance before they try to strike this resolution on Monday. And to your point, Kalia, there has been no public comment to the full city council to hear the feeling of these weapons in the public. And looking back to the public safety committee, the only comments that came were in support of the resolution to ban these weapons. They actually did something really interesting, a tactic on that uh, public safety meeting to silence the voice of the people by actually having Gerald Smith take up a decent portion of public comment. So the, the opinions that they actually did receive on this resolution were from the public, which they're trying to silence. And then the, the narrative that they're elevating is the, the one that they got from the chief of police, who obviously is not going to be in support to ban non-lethal weapons. Gerald Smith got to speak before the public comment. He got to speak after the public comment. Michael Jones, the patron of the resolution, was trying to speak. If, if, I don't know if, if I could be allowed to speak at this point for uh, the committee votes, uh, Councilman Jones. And again, Gerald Smith got to speak before this. So Naomi, you were absolutely right. The amount of space just taken up and who was able to Number one, be invited to speak, as we heard Councilman Mike Jones had to interrupt, jump in, almost beg for permission to speak. Um, and all while the public is pouring out their heart and re-listening to these meetings, you're just hearing people shut off when their time is up, right? And Gerald Smith having as much time as he needs to explain why he's different why he his policy is going to be better than the practice that we've had in the past why he needs time to do the research to figure out if any other weapons are possible to use instead um, he was not able to even talk about the differences of why these military weapons are used here and not internationally that was something that was heavily discussed in the public safety committee but seemed to bother councilman hilbert how could we possibly even have them to be deployed 
uh, uh, within our, our domestically. But yet, and so I'm, I guess I'm perplexed by that. So that might be. I don't know if the chief can answer that question. Um, so let me uh, ask the chief a question that I know he can definitely answer. Well, I guess if no one's asking this, then maybe we don't need to answer this question about not using these weapons internationally, but being okay with using it at home on our people. And just to be clear about the history there, tear gas was created for our U.S. purposes to use during World War One. So this is already a tool of U.S. imperialism of our military. Um, and it was banned in 1925 internationally at the Geneva Convention. It took until 1993 during another meeting, Cold War has happened and they've decided that there's a lot of pressure to get rid of these tear gas weapons with law enforcement. And law enforcement essentially says, well, if we don't use these non-lethal weapons, we're gonna have to resort to more lethal force. And that sounds crazy to hear, but that's still the argument that they're using today. We've heard Gerald Smith use that argument to our council, that if we don't use tear gas or these non-lethals, we will have to use more lethal force. And even Kim Gray has uplifted that. That's crazy to think that the compromise in 1993 was to allow law enforcement to continue to use it. And now it's only being used to suppress protests, whether it's here, whether it's Hong Kong, Puerto Rico, wherever you want to look at where they're tear gassing, they're doing it to suppress people's protests. To expand that context more when, you know, people mention the fact that tear gas is banned internationally, but we get to use it here. We, if you delve into that context even more, it's even, it's more sinister than it appears on the surface level, right? The reason why folks aren't using tear gas internationally is because the global opinion of committing violence, you know, genocide against people is bad right now. But when it comes to states being all states being invested in, you know, the preservation of their own power, they all can agree that there are times to use force against civilians or non-combatants when, when, when they pose a direct challenge to your power. And so there, there became this really shift to militarize domestically among many states across the globe, specifically between the, U the U.S. and Israel, who have both, you know, over the past 18 years held a very intimate partnership in the way that they've been militarizing their police forces against their civilians, specifically people who are rising up to protest violence against Palestinians and Black people. And so even the fact that they don't, that, you know, they, ch they choose to either not engage with that research or that history, or they actively choose to make it invisible, you know, unknown that, you know, this, this is really an intentional strategy among so many interlocking forces. Because a public comment that came about this particular resolution. While our members of the press call the actions in our streets riots and protests, the, the global press calls it an uprising really had me thinking about the idea of how the globe looks at the United States and what's happening this summer and still happening right now and how we at home are describing it specifically in the mainstream media. And globally, the United States is having a black uprising. 
here domestically, we're described as rioters. That crowd itself, which was also an unlawful assembly, was riotous. Even all the way locally from Gerald Smith, our, our chief of police, and city council people on the public safety committee having the distinction between the peaceful protest of the civil rights and the ones that we have to protect ourselves from today, which are rioters. And even when we just talk about crowd control generally in the way that it's come to the U.S., that's directly linked to 2014, the Ferguson protests that came about when Mike Brown, a Black 18-year-old, was murdered by the police for allegedly stealing a pack of Swisher Sweets. Okay? So when we're talking about even the presence of these militarized weapons in America, we don't even really get to, you know, this very violent, outward use of these militarized tactics until 2014 when there is this push, there's this energized movement against violence perpetrated against Black people. And so even all that context is not provided when it comes to the way that they've been using these weapons generally. You know, it's not the, the matter of protest and riot is the difference between some hurt feelings, right? So it's like, they even choose to ignore the context that incriminates them in their active willingness for years, you know, not just now in these Black Lives Matter protests, for years in the U.S. really just developing these mechanisms specifically to target anti-police brutality protesters. Yeah, I will never forget rolling into Baltimore and seeing tanks beside me during the Freddie Gray protests. That's something that you don't forget that first time you see the militarization. Just like you don't forget the first time your own police gas your loved ones or even people that you don't even know in your own city. And that's what we're talking about here is tear gas and non-lethal weapons like rubber bullets. And they expect us to have forgotten that just a few months ago, people were putting towels under their doors in their homes because the gas was coming in, or that folks' children. And what I've been deeply reflecting on is what lessons are we teaching the children in Richmond this summer? Children were being tear-gassed at the Lee Monument at Reclamation Square and countless other events. And so when the question comes up of should we ban these things, I'm just having such a hard time with the fact that this current city council, not a newly elected one, this one can't grapple with that and say, you know what, that's not okay. And we don't want a Richmond that allows for this type of violence to happen to our residents. And the, the RPD have a monopoly on violence in this city. Saturday, I witnessed that the window smashing began after police tear gas and pepper sprayed. So the idea that they need to be militarized, that they need these weapons to protect themselves from us. When all that protesters, demonstrators are equipped with is spray paint, you know? And so the, the fact that they act like they need this influx or increase in a budget, but when they are the ones who hold all of the power and all of the control and who is allowed to use violence is absolutely ridiculous. One resident made a really great point. I went out to see for myself what was actually happening because unless you are physically there, your perspective is influenced by secondhand accounts and hearsay. It is, again, with our own eyes, not through the media narrative that they put down our throat, that we can see that the police are violent and we will not be silent. 
So Kalia, you made a really good point about people putting towels underneath their doors and protecting their homes and themselves because their neighborhoods are getting gassed because we are reminded that we are at home right now in a pandemic. Frankly, I don't even know why we're debating whether or not to use a chemical agent that attacks the respiratory system in the middle of a pandemic that affects the respiratory system. Yeah, like the doctors have spoken out about it. which is ridiculous. Like how many doctors do you have to hear from? And I think, you know, we often even talk about the physical aspects of it, but let's even talk about the mental aspects of being tear gassed in a pandemic for fighting against racism in the way that the tear gas is basically still coming into people's homes in the sense that people are suffering from traumatic stress, horrifying anxiety from having been exposed to these impacts. And, and that is the intention of the chemical itself is to overwhelm you, to make you panic, to cause long-term stress and talk about tear gas as a tactic again. And the police and their training, you know, these are all tear gas is employed as a counterterrorism tactic. So when they're employing tear gas, that means what are they doing? Counterterrorism right now in our very city. And, and that involves a lot of just psychologically and mentally tormenting people as well as putting a lot of physical strain on their bodies. The physical strain, the emotional strain, the generational strain that this will have and has had. And also, too, to bring up a, a physical health piece right here specifically to Richmond is our asthma frequency, specifically with our youth. Children, Black children have been coming out, that youth have been coming out. And so we're just looking at how the tear gas or how the non-lethal weapons is impacting us in our place, space, and time of Richmond, Virginia, the fallen capital of the Confederacy that has this generational trauma <laughs> woven within the space already. And now we're putting another layer onto it through these events of 2020 and maintaining the legality of doing it within our city. Even if we don't understand why we don't do it internationally, thinking it's okay, oh, we should, we should trust this new chief that is having the same complaints from his prior location and locality in Charlotte-Mecklenburg that we have right now. And that brings me to talking to you all about the students, about Virginia Student Power Network. This identical lawsuits, instead of staying there and being held accountable, he flees to our city and gets moving costs covered to attract him to be our police chief in a city that was already suffering from tear gas. So they just brought in another commander who had a better track record of doing this counterterrorism work as Naomi named earlier. Chief Smith, not only was it just this protest of the uprisings this summer, but also Keith Scott, who was killed in Charlotte-Mecklenburg. They rose up then and they tear gassed them the same way. So when we're saying that he has a track record, you don't have to look very far. And now here we are ensued in this litigation against all of these police departments because they enacted violence on us for doing nothing more than really just trying to do a little teaching and watch a video. And here we are. So the city will have to pay if they lose that. This is money that could have been kept in the coffers and never put at risk if our legislators would take a stand and say, you know what, let's ban this. This is costing too much money and it's actually looking a lot like genocide. This is Ben Pavier. I'm a politics reporter at VPM News. 
So this summer, my colleague Roberto Roldan and I did some reporting around uh, the cost that the Richmond Police Department spent um, policing the protests this summer. Uh, and the first story we did we was filed in, in mid-July, and we looked at cost of the protests through uh, July 3rd, which was when the public records request we put submitted was was returned. And what we learned was they spent around $1.8 million through July 3rd on overtime costs, and, and about $200,000 of that was, was equipment. So we wanted to get more detail on what specific supplies they were purchasing. So we did another public records request. And the next month, we had a story about, about those purchases. And what we learned was that the police department bought over 1,000 units of chemical agents in various forms from June 1st through July 7th. We don't know exactly how they were used. The, the police department didn't respond to our questions about that. But we know they spent roughly $18,000 on OC spray, known as pepper spray, and they also spent just over $19,000 on CS tear gas canisters, excluding shipping costs. Another notable line item there was, was uh, rubber bullets. We saw the department was spending around $10,000 on 50 rubber pellet grenades and 150 foam bullet rounds, which could also be loaded with pepper spray powder. So... These were obviously very controversial uh, purchases. The, the police chief, Gerald Smith, said, justified them to, to city council. He said, you know, these are, these are important tools and they can be used effectively and with restraint and, and in a way that didn't produce any injury to anyone in the crowd, especially when a crowd's out of control. And, uh, you know, there's, there's some dispute about that. There's, there's been reports that protesters were hurt. Council member Stephanie Lynch uh, questioned whether, whether these purchases were really worthwhile. I mean, she said they had the opposite effect of tamping down protests. And, in fact, the protests grew because people were angry about the use of these, of these um, tools. So, the, you know, those debates from the summer are, are, are continuing. And they're, they're fodder for the, what we're, the conversation that's going on right now in Richmond about, about policing. So this is Ben Pavier. I'm a reporter with VPM News. I just get so overwhelmed when I think about the fact that you mentioned him getting paid, Joe Smith, to come here and do what he's done to us. And we're not even just talking about a $100 bonus, a $500 bonus. We're talking about tens of thousands of dollars, someone's actual salary, to come down here and facilitate mass violence against Black and Brown students over this past summer. And when they had the public safety meeting, I remember just laying it all raw and kind of talking to the council members and being like, look, this is the trauma that I face. And Reva Tremel and Kim Gray like to talk about the officers dealing with water bottles being thrown at them. And They're not paid to have bottles, not bottles, but rocks, bricks, batteries thrown at them and to be assaulted. No one is paid to do that unless you are a, a boxer. You're just not paid to be assaulted and those officers and they took it. I'm sorry if protesters are cursing at the police, calling them names, spitting on them, throwing things, but police are adults doing a job, an important job that they signed up for and they have to be the bigger people and lead by example by not following suit. The attitudes I've seen from police out there are disgusting. Police should be held to a higher standard. They do not get to retaliate when someone calls them a name or throws something at them. That would be like a Verizon representative cursing out a customer every time they get an angry phone call and that's obviously just not good customer service. To think that I have asthma and I have been tear gassed, pepper sprayed several times this summer. Those were the scariest seconds of my life to think that I can't breathe. The phrase that has been echoed by so many black people, not even just across this city, not even just across this nation, but internationally, 
funded by the U.S. military, the same U.S. military that is given this training, this authorization, and empowering the Richmond Police Department. If somebody got paid a whole salary during a pandemic, when people ain't got no job, when people can't afford the basic necessities of life, there was a person who got paid to come down here and facilitate that violence. And the city council is looking to give them more money. I'm completely overwhelmed by that. I don't even know how to cope with that information. And they want us to vote them back into council in November to do this all again. <laughs> and there's people that are running on pro-cop platforms in this city that are saying, you know what, vote me in and I'm gonna give more money to them. I'm gonna support them and that have watched this tear gas happen all summer. And that's why I'm saying to every candidate, every voter, y'all need to look at what these people are saying about what they want to do about the Richmond Police Department. And what do they want to do with that budget? Mark Cheatham put out a blog this week that's been really popular talking about the stance of the mayoral race. And the general feel from that is that the city is better than when it was in 2016. Yeah, Stoney sucks on police, but it's yes, the candidates want us to reelect them. But to me, it's also the people of Richmond allowing these candidates to be complicit about their public safety platforms. And that we could say, yeah, LeVar Stoney is better than Mayor Jones. And we hate what he's doing with police, but I mean, he's not that bad. It's like people really forgot this summer. People have really forgotten that we are on our third police chief this summer. People, how quickly we forget. Y'all, I do not understand how people can endorse LeVar Stoney and, and say that they care about people's public safety in the same sentence. Not the commander in chief of the RPD. Like, come on. And this is happening on a state level. This is just people throwing their hat into this race. And that's why I'm saying voters, folks that are not even voting, but you listening and engaging in conversations about this. I need y'all to hear. We cannot allow folks to be complicit in this police, criminal justice, public safety conversation. It's, it's been so hard to just listen a lot to these local races because I think there was a one, it was the last mayoral debate, I think, where they asked the candidates, there was an unexpected $25,000 budget cut. You, where are you going to pull money from to make ends meet? I'm paraphrasing. And ain't none of them said the police. None of them said the police. And so what that shows me is that it's not that they don't know what the people want, it's that they don't care. Because we have been out here, and I always have to stress that it really has not just been for the past hundred plus days. Because I, you know, I was looking through my calendar the other day and just thinking where we started off this year, still fighting the city council, fighting them because they were attempting to strike down public comment to hear people's opinions on the Navy Hill development project. You know, we started out this year having to fight with them, trying to silence the people who are trying to break ties from corporate interests the corporate interests that empower the police and inform our public safety model, might I add, and they have yet to listen to us. This hasn't just been since May. We've been out here all year, all 2020, all since last year, all since then before they was out here in 2018, talking about markets, talking about the heating crisis, talking about the water crisis, still talking about the police. We have been out here for so long. And at this point, it's really just not enough for them to be nice, to be better, to be less bad, I need you to defund the police. 
And that's going to be from now, it will be November 4th after the elections have passed, that we will still be pushing whomever is in this position of whatever it is to defund the police until they are defunded. And that means banning tear gas, demilitarizing, disarming these people, and really getting rid of this violence out of our communities. It's to the point where we have folks that don't know what the impacts of tear gas will be on their ability to bear children. You have these reproductive systems. There's a lot of questions right now about what's going to happen in the future that from internationally we've seen, there's been a lot of studies done on folks in the Arab Spring, other places as well, on people not being able to carry children after being repeatedly gassed. This is the type of violence that when we're saying it's genocidal violence and that they need to be defunded, that's why we're saying it. Because we have to sit here and talk about why they should ban tear gas from us just demanding them to be defunded. So it's pretty insidious at this point. What I'm hearing you all say and what I know we're trying to say to anyone that will listen that doesn't understand the urgency of this is that anytime our voices need to be heard to these officials, whether it's about housing, whether it's about the Navy Hill, whether it's about the policing, it's actually still the police that are gonna stop us and intimidate us. And it's always gonna be them that are protecting these officials no matter what. And that's the unfortunate part that Michael Jones, he's here talking about you know anti-policing now, but just a few months ago, he was on the corporate side. And so we, as the people, still always need our First Amendment right to be able to speak our opinion and to make it known without this state-sanctioned violence of the police. And right now, we have heard for generations that no one is listening. We have felt that no one is listening. If you're a listener and still not moving hard enough, then you're one of the folks that are not listening. And so we've come to the point of we have have to defund. And a huge group that we are still not listening to are the people that are incarcerated within the Richmond City so-called Justice Center. They're tear gassing people inside of the Richmond so-called Justice Center. That means that you can get tear gassed in the streets, arrested, get tear gassed in jail. It doesn't matter where you go. They're using the same methods of weaponry of warfare to shut us up. And these are people that were inside protesting the conditions of their incarceration. Mind you, we are having people that are incarcerated during a pandemic. They don't have any access or you know, minimal access to PPE. We have a whole episode about that. That's last week. But all of that to say they're tear gassing those siblings in there as well. And that's just unacceptable. When we talk about just the overarching ways that, you know, we're being silenced in the city. Not only are they striking down legislation, but you, when we're out here still saying that there's there's more justice to be earned and more justice to be returned, they're incarcerating us. And so, uh, it's just very, very grim looking in the city of Richmond. Um, and we have to remember that the direction, this is all coming from the top dog, which is LeVar Stoney. And so, you know, it goes right back up to to LeVar and his antics and who he really is entangled with when it comes to the way that he's managing this city. It's very scary. I mean, I don't know if anybody else just looks at the options and everything seems bleak.
in this place, space, and time of Richmond, Virginia, someone who is incarcerated may not have even been convicted, okay? They may not have money in their commissary to be able to afford a mask. They are in a pot during a pandemic of COVID, right? They also are now experiencing that risk to tear gas because they are at simply questioning the conditions of how to keep themselves safe during this pandemic. Again, see last week's episode. We are really wondering how everyone is okay with these conditions if we're really saying that we're looking at those most impacted. When COVID first started, we say the most vulnerable in every sentence that we said. If we can identify exactly who those people are and where, and yet we are still complicit with saying the top cop in charge, which is our city's mayor, does not deserve to be held accountable on the freaking voter ballot as well, then I don't know what... I don't know what y'all are saying. I don't know what we're organizing for. I don't know what you want me to vote for. I don't understand what the motivation is for keeping the system this way. If the voices that you say care really matter in this, in this moment, because in 2020, if it's not now, I don't trust any of y'all now. I'm also just confused what the right way to protest is. You know, you can't even demand standing behind bars already. surrendering any defensive position that you would ever have against police. There's no way we've been tear gassed in every circumstance, including literally while being caged. And so I'm just, I think they're running out of ways, they as in, you know, the establishment, they're running out of ways to lie about their, their acceptance of us making demands or you coming out to advocate for justice. They say that they're supportive of it, but their actions really don't show that they are supportive of it. And we can see when we look to the jail, when we look to legislation, when we look to what city council is advocating for, no one's actually here or supportive of any people who want better for black folks in the city. And that's sad because even the black folks in charge are not supportive of the black folks who want better in this city. I mean, that goes up to the state level with special session happening and we us watching legislators just argue away about their hesitation to not support the police or just their outright desire to continue supporting the police. I don't have faith in these folks that they will be the folks that will chip away at the power of the police. I, I think that it's going to have to be us. And so when y'all hear us saying that, we come out here, they tear gas in us, then they lock us up, and then they're tear gassing the people that they lock up. We got to hear this cycle and know that this is another leg of this mass incarceration vehicle that they've used now to weaponize against protests for Black life. And just to bring it home, because I'm one of those people that I listen to the General Assembly, I listen to City Council, and Kalia, when you're talking about it's hard to trust these people, it's because of the consistency, as we cannot find nor hear any official, black, white, brown, that consistently have the public safety and policing platform that is best for protecting Black lives. We saw just this week that Prosecutor Descano up in Northern Virginia, who's supposed to be a quote-unquote progressive prosecutor, 
whatever that is. And he decided that there were no charges that should be brought up on that state trooper from the video. We all saw him using use of force, trying to have a, a traffic stop because he said he smelled marijuana coming from this person's car. We're watching Delegate Jay Jones say that he wants to be your attorney general, yet he is endorsing LeVar Stoney and saying that in a general assembly, he wants to do something different with policing. I don't understand how you're going to come and tell the Richmond people that you want change for the Commonwealth, but are endorsing our top cop. You can also just look and listen to the people every time you have a chance to talk to them. This is the problem with issue-based organizing, y'all, is that we forget because of our public memory and we are taught to forget is that if you are not organizing directly around policing, then somehow we have been conditioned to forget. And we are here at Race Capital to remind you to always think about policing because if you're thinking about policing, then you're thinking about the cycle that is leading to those that are truly the most impacted and deserve your voice to be advocating with them. And the thing about Virginia is that our state inst institutions are embedded with corporations and our corporations are embedded with our electorate. So when we talk about cops and Klan go hand in hand, we also forget that cops, Klan, corporations and media go hand in hand. And so when it comes to the electorate, they're funded by these corporations who the police make a profit. This public safety model makes a profit. Amazon makes a profit when we have police. Amazon and Nova, there's a whole campaign around it. Who's receiving money from Amazon? So we have to look into these businesses that are also funding the police, that are also funding the electorate, who refuse to defund the police. And it's a huge cyclical circle. And then we want to talk about the media. Something that I found really interesting is not only does do U.S. military uh, local police forces receive specialized training from Israeli forces on non-lethal weapons training, but they also receive heavy training from the IDF on how to correspond with media when it comes to protesting and managing the ways that they commit violence against protesters. This is all an interconnected, again, interconnected mess, mess. And so when we're voting for these candidates and they're not anti-capitalist and they're not for Palestinian liberation and they're not concerned with the impacts of our votes here and how it impacts the global south, that's not working. That's not working because all that comes back home to haunt us, not because of anything other than karma. But except for we deserve it. Okay, Naomi, I'm here for that. Yes. Y'all are progressive, except Palestine. I need you to reevaluate, for real. Policing and Palestine tell you a lot about a candidate, tell you a lot about politics in general, in terms of talking about this stuff. And honestly, when I dug into research about tear gas, it's one of the first like parallels that you see in human rights research is just the, whether it's like you're talking about, Naomi, the way that the state of Israel is talking to the media, training our police on the use of it, using it themselves to bomb the West Bank, or it's the actual Palestinians that are having the impacts of the tear gas. It's just crazy to see how those similarities are there. And they're saying the same thing. Like if y'all are supporting the state of Israel, you know, I don't really know what to tell you. Just like we're saying, if you're supporting, you know, LeVar Stoney, Donald Trump, whoever it is, I don't know what to tell you. These similarities are glaring. And I think we should all be interrogating them.
And that's really what I've meant a lot this summer when I talk about the fact that the youth in the street, if you've really been listening to the youth in the street, this Black Lives Matter movement is not just about the police. Because when we talk about the police, the police are everywhere. And so many of our social institutions have been developed to model the police in incarceration. And so we are just talking about taking down white supremacy brick by brick from prisons to the White House to Israel. We are talking about an international movement against white supremacy. And I don't think that Richmond was ready for that because they thought they was just dealing with some, some people who was concerned about some monuments. But yeah, that really was just never the scope of the movement. And I think they're in for a rude awakening when it comes to the way that people feel about politics in this city um, moving forward. The last tear gas tidbit that I do want to share is that this gas is the same thing that they're using at the border. So when we're saying brick by brick, that also includes our undocumented siblings as well in this city as well. That means that our candidates need to be doing more. Language access at the very least. I haven't seen no Spanish to English interaction. I mean, very minimal interaction have I seen. We're not talking about the issues at hand with 45 in the White House and how that impacts our folks here and how we using the same weapons is just, it's crazy to me. So those connections, I just hope that folks are really thinking about whether it's up until November, once we get to November 4th and beyond, we need to be talking about the connections of how they are using the very same weapons locally, nationally, internationally when is someone going to say that this is enough was it not it wasn't gassing children at the border it wasn't gassing them at the lee statue it's not gassing them at the west bank when is it enough that's what i want to know and i just want virginia voters especially to move past just being content with being blue because what has this blue wave produced for us? And when we talk about Democratic mayors, we could, well, we could show them all day because, you know, even just the expansion literally of the military estate happened under Obama. We were selling like almost a third of the world's arms trades at that point under the Obama administration. You know, so when we talk about militarization and, and voting dim and voting blue and the blue wave, and that's what people are preaching, we have to go back and really analyze the records of these Democrats and, you know, start to realize that you can't just vote for people or support people based on their party lines, because a lot of the time there, there is no line. There's no line in the sand. You know, it's one party. It's a party that is led by disaster capitalism, by dictatorship, by corporate interests. And you're going to have to find the people. You're just going to have to find the people that are committed to your values. And it's, it's not going to be just because somebody is blue or works for Northam or tied to some Democratic name that you know of and you appreciated that they're going to be the best candidate for you. You really have to look and be critical and be comfortable and okay with being critical when it comes to the candidates because they are strengthening the carceral state, y'all. It's no joke, you know. And the last thing I'll say is that we have to recognize that voting is just one tactic because we still have to take apart brick by brick, as Naomi said, I'm really feeling that, but brick by brick, this system, this, this empire that is based in slavery, that is still profiting from slavery, 
our work as quote unquote abolitionists is to break that. And so that's why I keep talking about beyond November 3rd, because I don't have faith that anyone holding those positions are going to be able to take it apart brick by brick. I don't see legislation doing it. We can't even get them to ban tear gas. So it's going to take a lot more than that. And I hope that folks are ready for that reality, that it's not going to be rosy, rosy, put in our ballot on November 3rd and suddenly things are okay. We have an empire that is based in violence and genocide and slavery, enslavement of Black people. That's something that can't be fixed by a vote. Continuing on with this brick by brick metaphor that we've seen across history is that white supremacy is constantly building brick by brick. And if your faith is only in the voting system, just look at what's happening right here in the Richmond metro areas that white supremacy is attacking the voting system and the mailboxes, the literal system that they know is one of the most reliable systems for this uh, voting tactic that so many have all this confidence in. And it's why many of us for, for generations have been saying it's beyond the voting and it's by the building of the community. We've talked a lot today about the militarized weapons of tear gassing, rubber bullets, and we've heard testimony and just heard that from a health perspective, this is not something that we need specifically in a pandemic of COVID, specifically in a Black city, historically, specifically with so many Latin communities that are right here and are suffering and do not have access to medical care. We've heard from a legal standpoint that right now we have an actual lawsuit from the youth based on their experiences with the tear gas and that it's really affecting our ability to practice our First Amendment rights to protest. I really appreciate all of these conversations with my two co-hosts as always. Thank you, Naomi, Isaac, and Kalia Harris. Last thing I'm gonna leave y'all with is some of us got $1,200 during this pandemic. Other of us got zero. How many times have the police received a bonus or financial aid throughout the course of this pandemic? Think about it. Think about how much aid you've gotten. <laughs> and, then, and then reflect on that when it comes to the ways that we are handling this crisis right now of mass unemployment and mass medical <laughs> just emergency. And think about who's received the aid and who will continue to receive the aid. Thank you to my co-hosts. Thank you to the listeners. Um, You're listening to WRIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Independent Radio. I'm Chelsea Higgs-Wise with Naomi Isaac and Kalia Harris. We're your hosts with Race Capital. Thanks so much for listening and we'll catch you next week on Race Capital.